Hello, on behalf of the Independent Research Forum, welcome to this IRF podcast. I'm David Osman, and with me again today is Brian Pellegrini of Intertemporal Economics. Our subject for this podcast is the changing shapes of US politics. The Independent Research Forum promotes a wide range of high-quality independent research providers from around the world, both macro and micro, some are stock pickers, some are sector-specific, others are country-specific, many are global, and all are investment-related. Following the election of President Biden, US politics is entering an uncertain period ahead of the midterm congressional elections next year. The Republican Party is struggling to come to terms with the truth of Trump's narrow defeat. The Democrats have a very expensive fiscal program to build back better, but President Biden may not have that much time to implement all of the Democrats' ambitious policy agenda. To discuss these issues and more, I'm particularly pleased that we are joined again today by Brian Pellegrini, who is the founder of Intertemporal Economics and the firm's senior analyst. Brian founded Intertemporal Economics in 2018. Previously, he worked with Bernard Connolly as a senior analyst at Connolly Insight, where he specialised in geopolitical event risk, monetary policy, labour markets and energy matters. Prior to Connolly Insight, Brian was employed in various positions across Wall Street, including working with high-growth technology firms raising capital, structuring options trades, and valuing asset-backed securities. Brian has an MBA from Columbia University, a Master of Science in Finance from Northeastern University, and a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science from Columbia University. He is also a CFA charter holder. Intertemporal Economics uses an in-depth analytical framework which is based on microeconomic foundations. This allows an understanding of endogenous factors and patterns of human behaviour that cannot be analysed using quantitative techniques alone. The firm's research focuses on topics affecting economics, interest rates and asset prices in developed markets. Brian, welcome back. Let's start with a brief introduction to the advisory service that is provided by Intertemporal Economics. Hey, Dave. How's it going? Thanks again for having me back. So Intertemporal Economics, as you mentioned, um, bases its analysis on microeconomics. And the reason for that is so-called macroeconomics is very much a study in statistics and using the accumulated data and working backwards to try and figure out what's going on. So what I do is, uh, is quite a bit different. It's look at what's going on and try to understand the first principles of why these things are happening, and then work forward from there to forecast what's going to happen in the future. And so one of the aspects of my research is that it's very broad. You know, I write about the labor market, I write about manufacturing sector, politics, and foreign policy. And what I've discovered over my career is that if you apply first principles and net-based analysis, all of those things can be analyzed using the same framework. You don't need a political analysis model and a labor market analysis model. These things are all based on the same economic principles, and they're just applied in slightly different ways. 
So I write a lot of research. I write a weekly stock picking newsletter. And I also provide bespoke research and calls on whatever topics people want to talk about. Now, following the defeat of President Trump last year, there seems to be a major rift in the Republican Party between the Trumpists and the traditional conservatives. Is the grand old party, the GOP, facing an existential crisis? That's a really great question. And it's, it's been a huge topic of discussion in the United States. And people love a good story. And the story of one of the major political parties cracking up uh, and falling apart is, is very compelling. But I don't think that's uh, what's going on. One thing that's very interesting is there's so much attention on national politics and especially the presidency because it has so much prestige and it's a very visible position. But at the local level, there's a lot of power in the United States. We have a lot of devolution down to the state level, which are almost independent countries. And then within the states, depending on the state, uh, at the local level, there can be a lot of political control. So when you add up all the political offices at the federal, state, and local level, the Republicans actually have a slight political edge in terms of overall political power. And the balance of power actually shifted towards the Republicans slightly, but overall in 2020. And so one of the things that is definitely going on within the party is that it's trying to decide what it wants to be. And the same is the case for the Democrats. So I don't think that either party is going to disappear, uh, but I definitely think they will look very different by the time we get to 2024 and definitely in 2028. Now, from a longer term perspective, there are developing trends in American society that some say could erode the Republican Party's support. What is your view? And what does this mean for the future of the Democrat Party? Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of the political commentary in the United States is still using an old model. And that model is left over from the Cold War, like many institutions in the United States. And it basically divides the political electorate vertically uh, into capital and labor. And so for the longest time, the Republicans represented the establishment and had a very high percentage of the college-educated voters voting for them. Democrats always represented labor, and included in that was the assumption that all minorities are going to be labor and that they should just be counted as Democrats. But the world has changed. And so now instead of two groups, really we should look at it as four. So that's why the shapes are changing of the parties. And so if you think about it as instead of two boxes, Republicans and Democrats, you think of it as four. And on the top, you have college-educated voters and uh, you know that sort of cultural. And then on the bottom, you have white and non-white, non-college degree holders. And so uh, in that top left, you have white progressives, and they are not going to change from the Democratic Party. The question is, how much control do they have? On the bottom right, you could think of as the Republican Workers' Party, and that was founded by Trump, effectively. And that has white, non-college educated voters. And so what's, what's interesting and what's important to consider is that these two opposing sides are almost entirely made up of white people. So the American political scene is really, uh, the struggle is going on between two culturally opposed groups of white people 
and minorities and uh, the middle group of whites are just sort of uh, being taken along for the ride and used for propaganda purposes. But when you look culturally, non-college, non-white voters have a lot more in common with the Republican Workers' Party than they do with white progressives. And at the same time, college-educated whites are have traditionally been Republican voters, but were sort of scared away by the changing cultural norms. But if, if they drift back towards the Republicans because the white progressives are too anti-capitalist, then you could see a huge increase in the Republican Workers' Party uh, as it absorbs non-college, non-whites and college-educated whites who aren't white progressives. So you have now four boxes instead of two. And the sort of lazy analysis just takes birth rates and past voting records and says, well, minorities uh, are being born at a faster rate and they have traditionally voted more heavily Democrat. So ergo, if those trends continue forever, then there won't be as many white people and the, and the Republicans will lose. And at the same time, you have a higher percentage of college educated voters. But when you look at the demographics of who voted for who in 2016 versus 2020, you actually see that Trump gained everywhere except for white college men, right? White college educated men. And so these were the, this was the group of people who put him into power and they were subsequently the, the group that brought him out of power. Trump gained among black women, black men, Hispanic men and women, Asians, he picked up some points in urban areas and was able to hold ground in rural areas. So really, it was white people in suburbs who, whether it was for vanity or a need for normal normality, they were the ones that switched and they could just as easily switch back to Republican, which was their traditional home. So, uh, you know, you have to look at the changing alignment of um, cultural affiliations as well as wealth versus non-wealth. President Biden is seen by many as someone who would prefer to govern in a bipartisan way. But American politics seems to be sharply divided along party lines. What, if any, are the unifying issues and can they form the basis for some political compromise? Well, there are definitely some overlaps. Whether Biden is the person who can take advantage of them remains to be seen. But he definitely has been taking advantage of concerns about the trade deficit, especially with China. So one of the issues that unites Americans is that China is a growing threat. Republicans tend to see it more in terms of uh, national security and economics. The Democrats are more concerned about human rights and trade policy with uh, uh, emerging market countries and how China treats them. So there's different reasons, but definitely they, they, they agree on that China is not to be trusted. Another aspect is um, everybody wants unity. They don't have very much confidence that Biden is the guy who can do it, but they definitely want that. So I think if you have a Republican or a Democratic candidate who focuses attention outwards, especially, and, and away from internal factional fighting, I think that could form the basis for coalition of understanding, if you will, or uh, a faction of understanding. It. We don't have coalitions here in the United States in the same way. So a less strict ideological uh, movement could gain a lot of political power. It, we'll see. So 
What should investors be thinking about and focusing upon as we approach the 2022 election season in the US? And when does that election season start? <laughs> Probably five minutes after the 2020 election was done, but it'll kick into really high gear as the single party races are dealt with. So in places like New York and California, you have primary elections, but the states are effectively one-party states like North Korea. So you only have the, the primaries effectively decides who will win the general election. Once those are out of the way, it gives the Democrats and Republicans, whoever's running, a sense of where their voting base is looking. And right now, the, the white progressives are very, very active politically. So I would say by the fall, because people are on vacation in July and August. So in September, you'll really see a pickup in partisanship and partisan warfare. And when it comes to the financial markets, how do you see the bond market and the equity market performing uh, through this period? I think that the two big factors that investors should be concerned about, one being inflation expectations and the other being geopolitical risk. In the more near term, probably six months, I think that investors should watch out for rapidly increasing inflation expectations among consumers, right? Because that's something the Fed is going to be worried about. If there's inflation concerns in the financial market and bond yields start to rise, I think that you'll see an American version of yield curve control. The Fed has been very reliable in following the Bank of Japan. The Bank of Japan sort of tries everything out first, and then the Fed adjusts it to fit the American financial system and applies it. And so that's clearly what's coming if long-term rates keep rising. Uh, that'll be very good for equities. But if it causes a further increase in shortages and inflation expectations, it'll put the Fed in a bad position. Geopolitically, I am very concerned about the microchip shortage. Uh, I think that has the possibility to turn into an armed conflict, if not a very, very tense situation in Asia, specifically in uh, between Japan, Korea, Taiwan, and, J uh, and China. And so if this global supply chain continues to break down, which is something I've been writing about uh, increasingly, significantly, and, and uh, more and more often lately, as you start to get shortages, that creates knock-on shortages. So the bottleneck is actually closing for transportation of freight in the United States because the shortage of microchips means that fewer trucks are being built. So now that people are talking about semiconductors in national security terms, there could be a, a situation like in 1940 where the United States and Britain put in an oil embargo on Japan and forced their hand. And Japan figured, well, we got 18 months worth of oil, we better get going. And so that would be my concern. It's not certainly not the base case, but I don't think it's as far out on the tail as uh, tail risk as everybody might like to think it is. And is this a recipe for a strong dollar or a weak dollar? The risk is definitely a, a strong dollar issue, uh, especially if you have not necessarily confidence in the United States economy, but um, a loss of confidence in the availability of dollars. Right. So you could have a, a severe depreciation in emerging market currencies as they scramble for dollars. And that's not necessarily a, a vote of confidence in the U.S. economy. It's just a, a fact of funding. Right. 
And so in that case, yield curve control would be a really good way to prevent dollar appreciation. So, you know, and, and any flight to safety would be sort of canceled out by the Fed intentionally. Brian, many thanks for this most interesting insight into the service that's provided by Intertemporal Economics. With more time, it would be interesting to discuss in more detail your thoughts about what will happen in the US economy and global financial markets, as well as some of those geopolitical concerns that you mentioned. The Independent Research Forum is offering a short trial to the Intertemporal Economic Service and can provide details of how to subscribe to their full service. More information is available from the Independent Research Forum on request. So along with the free trial, I'm always happy to speak with interested readers on conference calls, and uh, I'm also available for bespoke research. Thank you, Brian, and thank you for listening to this IRF podcast with Brian Pellegrini of Intertemporal Economics.